Victor Lee Austin has a book called Up With Authority, and in this book, he has an analogy of using an orchestra to explain why we need leadership. And kind of the premise of the book is that, really, if you don't have leadership, then no one really knows what they're supposed to play for the concert, or what you should practice today, or how we should interpret a particular passage. You see, it's going to do no good for everybody to do what is right in their own ears, right? If the brass think that they should play this song, but the strings are totally into a different type of song, why, not only are you completely inefficient, but you're going to be unproductive. There's no, going to be no cohesive, coherent piece of music being played. And so he makes a case that you need to have leadership. In the case of an orchestra, you need to have a conductor. And so in the words of Victor Lee Austin, he said, the conductor's authority yields a greater degree of human flourishing than we would have from the musicians separately or individually. And that's true of orchestras. It's probably true generally in life. But you need to know something. It is specifically true when it comes to a local church. We've been spending several weeks now talking about the return of Jesus Christ. We're making our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, all the way back in chapter 4, verse 13. He starts talking about what does it look like when Christ returns, and beginning in verse 11, he tells us how you and I are supposed to live in light of the fact that Christ is coming back. We looked at it last week, verse 11, chapter 5, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. You see, when you and I place our faith in Christ, we turn from sin and our self-centeredness, and we embrace Christ by faith. What happens is, Christ literally comes and dwells in our life. We receive the Spirit of God, but just as true, we are actually united with a local body. We're united with the body of believers. We're united with the church universal, because the, all believers are the body of Christ, but we are also supposed to identify with a local body of believers. And so what does it look like for a church really to be built up and encouraged? How does God develop a life-giving church? Well, the answer is found in verses 12 and 13. In fact, let's take a look at it. Let's just read it. Verse 12, chapter 5, he says, But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. How does God develop a life-giving church? Well, we can break it down in two major areas. First of all, you have to have leaders who lead well. Did you notice that? The emphasis on leadership there in verse 12. Now, right now, in our culture, we celebrate the individual. It's, our culture is rather reluctant to place ourselves in a position of being accountable to others. It's all about the all-star, about you as the individual. And the reason is because of the fallenness of humanity, anarchy runs deep in every single person. We don't want to be accountable. We want to be rather self-sufficient, and we have ways of basically supporting a self-centered mindset. But that's actually not to be true when it comes to you and I who have placed our faith in Christ. 
We are to be united with Christ, and we are to see ourselves as united with one another because we're literally a part of his family. And in every local church, you're going to need leadership. So like a fellowship, we have a variety of men and women that are leading in all sorts of different capacities. But the New Testament is absolutely clear that the head, the leadership, the top-level leadership of any local church is supposed to be a group of godly men. They're referred to as elders or overseers, and they are to give leadership to a church. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term like elder, let me just give you a little history. I know when I was a new Christian, I heard that church leaders are called elders. Like, that's a little odd. Why is that? Well, that's because um, the Jewish people referred to their leaders as elders. And they were mature men. They're the ones that gave leadership uh, in the synagogue. They gave leadership in their community. They were the heads of families. They were men of strong personal integrity. They had character. They were God-fearing men. They knew the truth. They could communicate it. They were capable of making good decisions and passing judgment. They were capable of leadership. And they were referred to as elders. And so when the New Testament is written... You need to know that the early church initially was all made up of people that came from a Jewish faith and found Jesus to be the Messiah. And they took that term for leader, elder, and was carried over. They referred to their leaders as elders. And you need to know something. In the church, there's this amazing dynamic. All of us receive the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in Christ. But in the church, some of the sheep actually become shepherds. They always remain sheep. They're part of the body of Christ. But in some cases, some individuals are actually raised up to give leadership in the church. And without leadership, why, there'd be confusion, morale would erode, there would be enthusiasm and faith, the work of the body would just kind of grind to a halt if you didn't have leadership. And so the New Testament makes a strong case and emphasis that every local church needs leadership. And you're going to find when you read the New Testament that you're going to have these terms, elder, pastor, overseer, and they're used rather synonymously. They all refer to the exact same office. So like, they might point out some unique particular emphasis or features, but like an elder, that emphasizes like dignity or maturity. To be a pastor or shepherd, it emphasizes like leadership and caring and teaching. Or an overseer, sometimes might be translated like bishop in your Bible, and emphasizes the function of giving guidance and exercising authority to serve as a pastor or a shepherd. But they're all used rather interchangeably. In some verses, the same words occur in the exact same sentence, referring to the exact same people. But you need to know something. As go the leaders, so go the people. The level of spiritual health, maturity, vitality of any local church, in a large part, is going to be determined by the level and the quality of the leadership that you have in your church. You see, you have to have pastors, elders, spiritual leaders. You can't have a plan B. And the spiritual maturity of a church is really directly tied to the maturity and the capability of its leaders. What is leadership? Leadership is the capacity to inspire, motivate, develop, and correct, and encourage, and model the way to lead people in a particular direction. That's what leaders do. They guide, they serve, 
They motivate, they encourage, they correct, but they're leading in a particular direction. When uh, Karina and I were first married, we uh, went on a whitewater rafting trip, two-day trip on the Deschutes River in Oregon. And uh, I'd never been whitewater rafting, and, you know, just when you heard about it, people talk about how cool and awesome it is. And how it works is you go, and uh, you're put in the boat with some other folks, but then they give you a guide, and you pay a lot of money for this guide, especially like on a two-day trip. And when you initially launch out, it's just like you're just on the Deschutes River, and just kind of slowly going along, and like, why are we paying for a guide? I could do this. There's nothing to it. This guy in the back of the boat is just sitting back there and kind of telling us what to do, but there's nothing to it. And that, of course, eventually you start getting like these class three and these class four rapids. And all of a sudden you realize why the guy in the back of the boat is so important. You know, if you don't have a good leader in the back of the boat, your boat capsizes. You lose all of your stuff. And people get flung out of the boat, and that means that they're taking all these sharp, jagged rocks on at full steam. They're in the current. And it's going to get real messy and real ugly really fast. You can't stay in the boat. That's why leadership is so important to whitewater rafting. But even more so, it's important to have that kind of leadership in a local church. You are looking for people who are not just trying to be individual successes, but people that are looking to be of significance. To help others grow. That they're going to literally lay down their life to help others experience the gospel and experience maturity and the fullness of Christ. And church leadership is vital to the health and survival of a church. So what exactly do they do? What's their job description? Well, you don't have to Google it. All you have to do is look at the scriptures. What does verse 12 tell us? In fact, it gives you a threefold description of leaders who lead well. So let me say, verse 12, but we request you, of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who, here's your first part of the description, leaders who diligently labor among you. They have to be diligent workers. And this, this word labor, it has the idea that you work to the point of exhaustion. Like you're going to give everything to it. It's, it has the idea that you're going to face the challenges and the difficulties and the opportunities, and you're going to apply yourself. It's going to require a lot of time, energy, thought, prayer, uh, endurance, spiritual strength. It's going to be challenging. And if you're like, you know, like church leadership, being a pastor, that's got to be like a pretty cush job, right? I mean, what do that guy do? What, what do pastors do? What do what elders do? Well, you know, let me just tell you what this looks like. Like, for instance, there is one pastor, he actually just recounted from memory, memory the problems that he faced either in his office or in his home in the last 12 months of just things that he faced, just problems. This will give you just a little insight into the hidden costs made by spiritual leaders. So he said, well, there were all forms of anger, from long-standing resentment and unforgiveness to rebellion and violence, child beating, mutilating, wife torture, and threats against life and revenge. And then he talked about well, some other problems that he faced. Well, there were sexual offenses of rape, incest, sodomy, homosexuality, fornication, and the ever-present adultery. And then there were marital problems of every kind, attempted or contemplated suicide, and an occasional successful suicide, abortions, and adoptions. I saw many family problems between parents or single parents and children. And there were also addicts of every sort. Started listing them. Well, there were alcoholics, drugaholics, 
foodaholics, workaholics, sexaholics, spendaholics, you name it. And then, of course, there are the institutionalized, either coming from or going to a prison, hospital, detox unit, or a mental facility. There's the psychotics to deal with, or the quieter problems of legal, finances, career, and questions about a specific passage of scripture, or those who are just simply wanting to know more about the church. Years ago, I was talking with a cardiologist. I don't know if he was trying to scare me or what, but he told me that, in his estimation, the most stressful occupation a person could be in would be a pastor. I'm like, oh, great, thanks. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. So what, what do elders, leaders, pastors, what do they do? Well, I just started listing some things that occur. Some occur daily, some occur weekly, some at different times. But these are just things that an elder or a pastor is, is going to be facing, that, that, that you understand why the scripture is calling for a diligent labor, a hard worker. Here's some things. They're praying, evangelizing, equipping, defending, loving, laboring, modeling, leading, feeding, watching, warning, studying, hopefully you're trying to study, teaching, preaching, exhorting, encouraging, correcting, rebuking, rescuing, setting an example for others, mirroring, bearing, caring, counseling, planning, and casting vision. Sometimes when I describe Fellowship Bible Church, I explain to people like, well, to understand fellowship, we're kind of like a hospital for the wounded and the sick. And what we try to do is we try to bring people to help and try to really meet their needs, to care for them, but with the idea that we want to help them come well. We, we don't really want them to be perpetually wounded. But at the exact same time that we're a hospital for the sick and the wounded, we are also like an Olympic training center. We are trying to bring people to the fullness of maturity in Christ. We're really applying to develop leaders to help men and women, boys and girls of every age, experience what it means to come to the fullness of Christ. So yes, we're a hospital for the sick and wounded, but at the exact same time, we're an Olympic training center, and we want to be absolutely intentional. And that's what spiritual leaders do. That's why the scriptures call for diligent laborers, hard workers. Because leaders who lead well are diligent workers. Let me show you something else here from verse 12. You want leaders who lead well? They not only have to be diligent workers, but they have to be competent overseers. Do you see that in verse 12? And they have charge over you in the Lord. To oversee has the idea to supervise, to direct, to help bring development, to care for a church. And that's what you've got to have. You've got to have leaders who are committed to the well-being and the growth of a local body. So, what does it take to be a competent overseer? Well, you've got to have a degree of maturity in Christ as a follower of Jesus. And because you have to be able to model spiritual health. Let me tell you something else you need to be. If you're going to be a competent overseer, you need a willingness, a desire, you need a, a drive. The New Testament calls it a calling. Because it's going to get tough, and the opportunities to bail or to do something easier are going to be plentiful. There are a lot of times like, I think I'd rather do something else. This is really tough. This takes a lot out of me. So you need this sense of willingness and desire. But if you're going to be a competent overseer, you also need to have abilities. You've got to be developing competencies to lead and guide people, to organize and mobilize and energize the church 
That's all required. You've got to have skills because they're going to come into play in your leadership. So in the case of Fellowship Bible Church, uh, we've had a couple of good elders rotate off in the past few years. And currently we have five elders. We've got John Gale, Shane Sanders, Brian Davis, Jason Bryant, and me. And what our job is, is to focus on seeing that we as a church fulfill the mission that God has entrusted to us. And our mission, if you're new here, is, is very simple and very clear. There you go. Fellowship's mission is to glorify God by living out the life that we have in Christ. That word life is an acronym. It tells us L for loving God, I for investing in others, F for following his word, and E for engaging our world. That's what overseers are doing. We want to make sure that this is happening for every age that we are moving forward. And so if you're an overseer, you're, you're giving directional leadership. Now, some of you, you've got businesses that you're running, you're head of departments, uh, maybe you're chair at the universities, you've got some deans, you're overseeing a lot of folks. If you're a directional leader, let me give you a process that I found to be extremely helpful and kind of figure out what are, your, what are your next steps, where are you going? And it's simply this. First of all, you have to have an understanding of a prayerfully preferred future. You're asking God, what does maturity look like with this mission or vision? You're, you're asking questions like, how, how do we function and thrive as we grow up? Like you're like, when we mature, what does that look like? You have a picture, you can describe it. So you have a prayerfully preferred future. But the second aspect of this process is that you have to have an honestly evaluated present. You have to be able to have adult conversations. Where are we really at? Not just pretending everything's fine. Maybe it is. Probably it isn't. Where are you really at? So like in a church setting, this is what the things elders are looking at in evaluating. They're looking at the strength of their elder team. They're looking at staff, leadership development, the financial health and budget allocation of the church, campus and the facilities, the community involvement, and the level of health in a church. They're giving honest evaluation. They're going to have some sort of metrics, some sort of understanding where are we really at. And once you have kind of an understanding of a prayerfully preferred future and an honestly evaluated present, then you're looking at identifying next steps. Purposely identifying next steps. What would be the next steps of seeing the vision become reality? What do we need to do? And so you pray, you ask, you, you talk, you, have, you look for wisdom, and you start identifying we, these are the next steps. Sometimes you've got to focus on just a couple, but for this season, we're going to be focusing on doing this. This is what we believe God has called us to do. And this is what elders do. They offer oversight. They're looking at the culture and the avenues for development. It's kind of like a Petri dish. Okay? Now, some of you play with Petri dishes on a regular basis. All of us had the joy of doing this in science class at one time. Right? And what you do is you put like a little bacteria, a little piece of moss, and you put it in a Petri dish. And a Petri dish is like the ideal environment for this bacteria to grow. Right? And you put it in there, and like a week later, it, whoa, it is really cool. You put it under a microscope. It is fascinating what developed from just that little bit of whatever you put in there. It's like grown tremendously. Friends, that's what you want to do as a leader. Spiritual leaders are looking to create an environment, a culture in which the church can thrive. 
where maturity in Christ is being experienced. And so you're looking for the church to thrive. Competent overseers are looking to make sure that the body is caring for itself. And that's what you want to do. You want to mobilize the body for ministry. Ministry for growth, health, ministry to care one another. You can't like, well, if someone's sick or there's a problem or there's a real need for, for help, we'll just call the elders and the elders, or we'll just call the pastor and the pastor will deal with it. No, the pastors do need to exercise care, do need to be helpful, but really what you want to do is mobilize the entire church, just like your body all works together. We're interested in everybody being involved, caring. It's one thing for you to do it, but a, a really good leader actually trains others so that they can do it. They multiply themselves. That's what they are doing. In many respects, um, the church is functions like a family. It's interesting. When you look at 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, one of the qualifications of an elder, an overseer, is that they have to manage their household well. Why is that? Well, you know, if you can actually take care of your family in pretty decent fashion, you might actually do a pretty good job in the church because there's a lot of similarities. And so what you're doing is you're offering spiritual leadership. Notice what the text said. It is in the Lord. You, are, you have charge over people in the Lord. It indicates the spiritual nature of leadership. And not only are you looking to develop a culture, but you're looking to develop avenues avenues for everybody to grow in Christ. So whether that be like children's ministry or small group or youth, college, adults, what you're doing is you want avenues where you're, you're encouraging, you're developing leaders, where you have people in place to help others grow, that there's a degree of organization to a living organism called the local church. And so if you're going to be uh, a, a leader who leads well, not only have to be a diligent laborer, but you have to be an effective overseer, a competent overseer. And there's one other thing then, notice what the text says in verse 12. You also, they give you instruction. Leaders who lead well have to be effective teachers. To give you instruction, it literally means to put in one's mind. It's where we get the word nuthetic from, which is a type of counseling. It's the idea that you put in one's mind so that they understand how to grow, or they correct an action that is wrong, or a behavior, or a conviction that's not quite right. Really, as a, as a leader, you're not just merely dumping academic data into people's heads. They're like, I hope that helps. If you want to be filled, God bless you. Go away. No. What you're doing is you're teaching people in such a way that they see how to integrate God's truth in their life as they're dependent upon Christ. His spirit is working in them. And so you're involved in this process. You want to see people growing in Christ. It is, by the way, one of the qualities every elder overseer must have. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. They've got to be able to teach as well as refute error, which means they've got to have a pretty high degree of familiarity with this book we call the Bible. You're not just teaching your best ideas. Well, here's some things I've picked up along the way in life. No, you're teaching this is what God has revealed. You know the scriptures. You can rec recognize orthodoxy. You can recognize when things are outside the bounds of what scripture calls for. By the way, you want to be good at teaching because, after all, leadership is really about influence. And so, if you're going to be a leader who leads well, you've got to be able to teach. Uh, certainly on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Or in a small group. In some cases, you will have leaders who will teach in a large group capacity. 
doesn't mean they all have to be able to speak to hundreds, but they have to be able to communicate biblical truth, certainly on a one-on-one, hopefully in a small group setting. And so they, what they do, they have to understand the text. They show how it me, what it means and how it applies, and they, they're able to illustrate the truth. And this is so critically important. Even when Paul wrote his final letter, he wrote it to Timothy, who was a pastor and an elder. And he said in his final letter, 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved by God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Just like a construction worker knows how to use his tools, if you're going to be a leader who leads well, you've got to know how to use the tool of God's word. How it applies. Because after all, this is what we're to do to make disciples. We're to use the word of God. We're to teach them all that Christ has given us. And so you want to follow a pattern like Ezra. Here's a great verse. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. This is how Ezra went about his spiritual leadership. He said, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And that's what we do. You study it. What is this saying? What does this really mean? Then you practice it. Before you go exporting it, you put it into practice in your own life. And then you teach it. That's what spiritual leaders do. So spiritual leaders, if they're going to lead well, they got to be diligent workers. They have to be competent overseers. And they need to be effective teachers. It's kind of like being like an orthodontist. Now, I don't want to bring up like bad memories for some of you, or for some of you presently even going through this, but you know how this works. You know, you meet with the orthodontist, and what they do is they, they examine the current state of affairs of your mouth, right? Remember, like, I had braces for some pretty obvious reason, and they put all this plaster in your mouth, right? And they, they create this mold, and then they show you, like, okay, this is what we're dealing with, right? You got, like, prickly pear city going everywhere, like, ah, great. You know, but listen, this is what we could, we could do. We could actually move to this. But in order to do that, we're going to have to take these steps. And it's going to involve a little bit of metal and maybe headgear and rubber bands and steel. But what we're going to do is we're going to move these teeth so they'll become a thing of beauty. They will function optimally. And that's what an orthodontist does. In some respects, that's what church leaders are doing. They're taking the current situation and they're moving it to health wholeness, wholeness and maturity, a thing of beauty. To give you the big picture of what God intends for every local church, I'd like to read to you a, perhaps it's a familiar passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And Paul literally wrote this, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. God's the one, he's given leadership for this reason, for the equipping of the saints For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Do you see that? Their goal is to equip the saints so the body builds itself up. It accomplishes work. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then he says in verse 14, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. That's the way. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. 
in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's what God intends. He brings people into his family, into his body. We are all vitally connected to the head. The head sends the signals, and we are all united to one another. We're working with each other, not against each other. And this is how God's lined it up. You're going to have leaders. They need to be good leaders. They need to be diligent laborers. They need to be competent overseers, and they need to be effective teachers. And I will tell you this. The idea that you're a Christian, and you follow Jesus, but you're actually not a part of a local church. You have no allegiance to a local church. You just kind of flip here and there. I know that might be in vogue right now. That's not following Jesus according to the New Testament. You just need to be at least honest with yourself. The idea of customized Christianity, um, stylized spirituality, where you pick and choose what parts of the Bible that you're going to follow and what parts you're going to just ignore, that's not what God's called us to. He's called us to be unified. And this is how a church moves forward, a second coming church. We are unified under leadership. Now, that's only part of the equation. Is there a response to the other believers? Okay, so if you're going to have a second coming church and how God develops a church, you're going to have to have leaders who lead well, but you also need believers who love well. And you're like, why would you say that? Believers who love well. Because that's actually what is emphasized in these verses. Appreciating, esteeming, loving them. You see, if you're going to have an orchestra that plays beautiful music, yeah, you're going to need some competent, committed conductors, aren't you? You know what else you're going to need? You're going to need a whole wide variety of musicians that are competent and that they're engaged and they're aligned with the conductor that we're all playing the same piece of music at the same time and we're doing it to the very best of our abilities. You see, love, if, if you understand the importance of love, love is really what opens the gates to spiritual growth. Love is kind of like oil to a machine. If you haven't put oil in your lawnmower the last few years, and it suddenly seizes up, the reason why is because you didn't take care of it. You didn't put the oil that is needed. Or if you run your car dry, you just like, you just like watch all the oil just eventually drip out, you will wreck your car. See, love is like oil. It allows things to move forward smoothly so it doesn't seize up. And really, the church is like a three-legged race. You ever been involved in one of those? Okay, sometimes like family gatherings or like carnivals or whatever. A three-legged race is where you got two people and then they tie the center legs together, right? And how this works is that you've got to be in tandem. You've got to be running and walking in sync. But you've seen that sometimes, like you might have an adult with their kid and the parent is just like dragging their kid, you know, the kid's in the ground, but of course they're trying to win. Or in some cases, this is cheating by the way, you pick up the kid and you're just kind of carrying them like this. No. Their, their feet are supposed to be touching, your feet are supposed to be touching the front. That's how a local church moves forward. We're tied in tandem. We need to work together. And so that's why if we're, we need believers who love well. What do we need to do? We have to appreciate our leaders. Look what he says in verse 12. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. The idea of appreciate means 
literally like to know, oida, to actually know personally. That's the idea that you have a caring appreciation for leaders that you know. Their heart's in it. You love them. Not only do we appreciate leaders, but we value our leader's role. Look at verse 13. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And this, this is actually like really strong in the Greek. It, it could be literally translated beyond exceeding abundantly. To hold them in highest regard. This is what God is calling his children to. That we're a people of love. Deep love for God. Love for one another. Love even for leaders. And I, I just want to tell you. I want to thank you for being this kind of church. It is a joy for me to be appreciated and cared for, for how you take care of me, my family. I know that not all pastors have it like this. I've got friends that have different situations. And I perhaps speak for all the elders. It is a joy to be a church, to be part of a church that is committed to Christ and what God has revealed in the Word. It works well as we're working together. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You need to know, if you're a spiritual leader, you will one day give an account for your leadership to the Lord. What did you do with what I trusted to you? But notice what he also says. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. When he calls for love, you see that in verse 13? That's the word agape. It's the love of your will. Certainly when the emotions are there and the feelings are there, that's all great. But agape love is a commitment of your will. You don't want to be run by your feelings. You want to be governed by truth, by Christ. And so he's calling for a love of leadership. That's why a church that is really developing well under God's care, you not only have leaders who lead well, but you have believers who love well. And the only time that you would find yourself like, I can't do this, is if you've got leaders who are going in an unbiblical direction. They are not aligned with Scripture. And then, in all grace, you go and talk with them and say, help me understand here. This is kind of what I'm seeing. This is what I'm reading. Help me to understand this. You ever got a situation where leadership is out of kilter? Well, then you're going to address this. But you want to make sure that you're not taking your leaders and making them targets for criticism or unrealistic expectations. You need to know something. All shepherds are sheep. No perfect leader. The only perfect one is Jesus. I mean, when you look at leadership in the Bible, like Abraham and Moses and David and Peter, man, they, God used them in tremendous ways. But there were also some times where their words and deeds were wrong. In some cases, significantly wrong. And they need to be addressed. But what we want to do is, like the scripture says, verse 13, live in peace with one another. That's going to require leaders who are leading well and believers who are loving well. Friends, if you don't have both of those elements, you know what you're going to have? A dysfunctional mess. That's why this is so critically important. We're living in light of Christ's return. Jesus is coming back. We want to live as he's intended as a church. So what we need, then, is ongoing clarity and guidance. For the goals of any Christ-centered church are this. They're pretty simple. 
to glorify God, to honor Him, to enjoy Him, to obey Him, to serve Him, to honor God, to exalt Him, to the spiritual well-being and the maturity of believers in this disciple-making mission that Jesus has trusted to us. That's what we're about as a church. A Christ-centered church is about the development and maturity of the believers in the church. And third, any Christ-centered church is about the advancement of the gospel, both locally and abroad. That's what God is interested in. That's what is emphasized in the New Testament, and it's going to take all of us. All of us working together, united in Christ. And every believer belongs. Every one of us has something to offer. In fact, we must. So it's just kind of like a team. You know, any successful team, they've got coaches, and they've got players, right? And sometimes you've got coaches that are players as well. I mean, that's kind of how that works. But you have coaches and players. Everybody fulfilling their role and doing their best. Friends, as a church, we're really more like a battleship. We're rescuing the lost. We're engaging the perishing and those who are enslaved to sin. And we're reaching out to those who have no hope with the hope of Christ. We're more like a battleship. We're not like a cruise liner that's just trying to keep you comfortable as you pass through life. As a church, we're more like a rescue station than we are a carnival. We're not a carnival. We're not here just to keep you entertained. We're here to rescue the lost and the perishing. We're here to develop disciples, build disciples. As a church, we're actually much more like a ranger school. We're teaching people how to authentically share their faith in the gospel and how to truly build up disciples, to make disciples of all the nations. We're not a religious activity center that's just trying to help you have a nice life and a better bingo game. That's not a church. That's a community group. We're not that. As a church, we are developing an athletic team who are developing leaders and believers. We're not here to do, just create spectators. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is all of us united together in Christ, fulfilling our role. When I lived in Rochester, Minnesota in junior high and high school, um, some of you remember Rochester because it's got the Mayo Clinic. But they also have this other feature of the city, and it's called Silver Lake. In fact, there's a picture of it. And uh, I've run around that lake more times than I can count. One of the things about Silver Lake is that it actually cools a, an electrical plant there. And so the temperature of the water is always warm, and it never freezes. Everything else and everyone else freezes, but the lake never does. And because of that, there are thousands and thousands of Canadian geese that call Silver Lake home. And in the city, there are laws uh, protecting them. So, like, even if they attack you, you can't attack them. You can't even hardly defend yourself, okay? You just, you got to live with the geese, all right? And so that's what it works like. And so you have all these geese. And these geese are rather fascinating. Like, for instance, let me just give you some facts about, about a flock and how they fly when they're flying in formation. Like these Canadian geese. As the goose flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the birds that follow, and they fly always in this V formation, just like that. I see this, you see this all the time. And they do so because the flock adds a 71% greater flying range than if each bird flew alone. So when they're all together like that in that V formation, they can fly 71% farther. And when one goose falls out of formation, like you see that one that's kind of a little bit out of formation, that doesn't last very long because it's really hard work, and it flies back in formation because they feel the drag and the resistance, and so what they do is they fall back in line. But when a leaf bird tires, 
Okay, so that, you see that one that's kind of the point of the spear? When that bird tires, what it does is it flips back into the rotation, and it takes advantage of the uplift of the bird now immediately in front of us. So this is kind of how they were flying. And this is something that you will notice with the Canadian geese. When they're flying like this, they're always honking. They're very just like, and loud, and they're flying, and they're honking. Scientists have determined that the reason they're honking is that they are encouraging the leaders up front to keep pushing forward, to keep flying fast. And so they're always honking because they're encouraging the leaders that are up front. And what will happen is if a bird, any of these birds get sick or wounded or shot down, not only will that bird kind of drop down, but two other geese will follow it. And they will stay with that goose until either it's well and it flies back and it either joins the formation or they join another formation. Or if it dies, they'll wait for it to die and then they fly back and they'll either catch up or they'll join another formation. And you're like, what's the big deal about geese? What does that have to do with the church or church leadership? Well, for us, the most profound lesson that we can learn about geese that are flying is that they are fulfilling and carrying out the purpose on earth as God designed it. This is what God's designed them to do. And they do it just like that. Friends, we're the church. We have been brought into the body of Christ. Do you know what Jesus prayed? I was looking at this in the last night in John chapter 17. He was praying that we would all be one. That we are moving forward together. And friends, this is how we do it when these verses are put into play. You see, a life-giving church values Christ-centered leaders and believers. And friends, if this continues in our church, and as we do this, you know what? This is music to God's ears. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for a tremendous passage of Scripture. How you've outlined very simply and yet profoundly what it looks like for a church to follow you, to be developed, to be moving forward, to be life-giving. Father, if there's anyone here who has never truly trusted in Christ, maybe even the events that have been going on this past week or month, or even something they've heard today, you've got their full attention. They realize that they need a Savior. They need you. Would they simply pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. I ask for forgiveness. I need your life. I need you now. And I put my faith and trust in your Son. And Lord, for all of us, help us to be so deeply in love with you and your word that your truth is the fabric for our souls and you accomplish your purposes in our lives in this generation for your glory. This we ask as we pray in Jesus' name.